Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool suspension. Hello and welcome to Coral Chihuahua. I'm Eamon Dugan, associate conductor of the 16 and a singer with both the 16 and E. Fagiolini, whose directors, Harry Christophers and Robert Hollingworth, join me as usual. We're still social distancing in the extreme with several hundred miles between us. How have you been, Harry? I'm fine down in here in Kent. At least I've got the, the North Downs to enjoy. That's nice. Lovely. Uh, Robert, how's the holiday beard coming along? Uh, yeah, so f- fluffy. <laughs> I thought you were looking particularly splendid on your Sing the Score the other night. Thank you. It's, it's more of a post-pubescent growth rather than a beard, really, I'm afraid. Our guest today is a true vocal polymath. Performer, teacher, curator, conductor, facilitator, broadcaster, writer. Just some of the job titles you'll find on her CV. Many of you will know her from the operatic stage, most especially in works by contemporary composers, and others will recognise her as the best-informed expert guest on Cardiff Singer of the World or as a judge on BBC Choir of the Year. Personally, I know her as a most wonderful coach and teacher who's held in the highest esteem by all who work with her for her comprehensive knowledge and understanding of voices, her no-nonsense approach to singing, and the infectious energy and enthusiasm she brings to all her projects. So welcome to the ever-youthful Mary King. Thank you very much. What a wonderful introduction. This podcast is called Choral Chihuahua. Now, you introduced me to my inner chihuahua some 15 years ago, And the image struck such a chord with me that I've been trying to spread the word about it ever since. So may we hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Can you give us your take on your inner chihuahua? Well, I think it's a a matter of being an animal lover generally. I rather prefer animals to people. And the dog changes. So when I first met you, it was the chihuahua. The idea that you could could pant uh, with a state in a state of sort of happy excitement as if a dog chasing a ball. So sometimes it would be a chihuahua, sometimes it would be a cockapoo. Um, And every now and again, when people got really desperate, they were imitating St. Bernard's and that didn't do at all. So um, 
really what it's about is making sure that your your vocal apparatus is open and free and wide and that you are the, the vocal tract is wide and you are not using the tongue to suppress or squash the sound or the larynx so it's got lots of lots of things uh wrapped up in it in a way um but but essentially what you're trying to do is get people to laugh um and have the idea that they're laughing and singing at the same time, which for me is the best way to approach singing. Wasn't that <laughs> something, actually, it just reminded me, Mary, I remember you telling me once about uh, the the play about Florence Foster Jenkins. Yeah. And was it Maureen Lipman? Was it Maureen Yes, Lippmann? I was coaching, yeah. Yeah, and didn't you, in order to make sure that her voice was okay every single night, you know, singing in a bad way, you taught her dog noises or something was it it wasn't dog noises actually we had a lot of hilarious fun uh, in my teaching studio um trying to sing like florence foster jenkins without damaging your voice because she was doing a play that was on eight times a week so you have to be really 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 careful one or two of the keys were a bit lower than um the originals but they were still jolly jolly high and she is not a high voice so actually what we did we did we did chicken impressions barked and chickened and whooped and until we found the animal that most produced the kind of racket that dear, dear Florence did. Um, and I had to always uh, put a good half hour at the end of her sessions to recover and also not to alarm future students. As they were <laughs> That's brilliant. Mary, we're going to um, dip into some bits of your hugely varied career, as I described, and, and get your take on some important aspects of singing and being a singer. Um, to start at the beginning, now, our first guest on the show was Sally Dunkley, who I know is a, a dear friend of yours. Harry, yeah. you first met Sally in the Clarks of Oxenford. Was this also how you first met Mary? It was, I suppose. I mean, it, it's it's a very long time ago. What was it? Uh, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Um, and I think it's earlier than that, Harry, I think. Was it? Yeah. yeah. I think I joined, I mean, the recordings I remember singing with you was, I think, was uh, January 1977. It was my last last couple of terms at Oxford. But, um, you know, the, it wasn't. there was an extraordinary range of people who had been, uh, um, uh, I think, Academical clerks with David Walston at Morden, so the likes of Roger Bray, people like that, and then there were us, us, us relative youngsters, uh, you and Sally, and um, and all sorts of people. Um, but it, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary group, wasn't it? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I, I the first thing I did with them, I met Sally on was it St Eddington's that they, they used to do a. a mm. And I was at Birmingham University. I was actually reading English, not music. And I met Sally there. And she said, why don't you come and join the Clarks? So that's that's what's that's as simple as that. Uh, uh, And I then did a postgrad. I did a teaching certificate at at St. Anne's um, in Oxford and uh, and joined the Clarks. And I remember I think the first thing I did was spem and allium. That's what I remember. Um, but I remember it mostly because the score was split in half, cut down the middle. Yeah. And yeah. I, I thought to myself that I was quite a good sight reader. You know, I wasn't brilliant, but I was okay. And I was lost after seconds. You know, I was just, I had a clue where anybody is. I don't have an idea when the fifth choir comes in. So um, 
that was very, very it, it was a wonderful thing when you, you know, when you change ponds, I would say, you know, when you're, you're quite a high flying fish, that's a terrible idea. Um, but you're, you're, you're a big fish in a small pond, and then you move ponds. And there I was in Oxford with people who are much, 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 much better readers than me much more used to this style than me. And it was a big wake-up call. And it was up a minor third as well. Do you have any to sing? Terrifying. You know, oh, terrifying. terrifying. And what did you sing? Do you remember what you sang on that one? Was it was it mean or, or treble? Oh, it was definitely mean. I, I was yeah. never... <laughs> Let's dust off the cobwebs and uh, remind you what it sounded like. Uh, here's a track from uh, the Cantate Mass by John Shepherd. This is the Gloria. Clark's Voxenford there, conducted by David Wollstone in an excerpt from the Gloria from his Cantate Mass. We've touched on the sound world of the Clarks uh, in some previous episodes, and Robert, in light of our discussion on use of vibrato recently, there's an example of singing with absolutely straight tone, but tremendous energy nonetheless, you know, once the, once the full choir come in after that opening verse section. Yes, I don't know. I, I'm so conflicted when I hear something like that because there's the whole pitch thing. There's this kind of invented thing of... of uh, of the pitch, uh, and then there's the the lack of that of presence in the middle voices because there are countertenors on it instead of um, tenors. But having sung in that choir only a few years later, it was one of my top musical experiences. Putting uh, the Thai Pekavim was together. I just remember that sense of utter excitement and energy with with singers that really understood that sort of music, which was fairly new to me. 
I just found the LP actually uh, the other day, and it had on that there was seven outers, seven countertenors. Can you imagine that? <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a collective <laughs> noun for that somewhere. <laughs> yes, but we can't repeat that on, a, on, on when we're broadcasting. Mary, that's a long way from the style of singing for which you became known. I mean, how does that make you feel hearing that now? Well, I I love it, um, and I have to say, I I, I love the the pitch. It's it's got such clarity. It had it's like a, a very sharp sorbet, um, but I think for me that the issue for me was that in order to produce that straight tone, uh, I had to suppress my true voice, and I think all young singers have to, you know, to to develop in their own way, don't they? And what what they what they take as incredible musical influences, the rigor, the passion. David Bolston, you know, was so the words overused, but committed to that notion. It was a thrilling thing. It was absolutely thrilling. We've got you there singing as a, as a member of a choir and, and working with and directing choirs is, is now an important part of your work. I'm guessing there was a period when you, you didn't sing as part of a choir. So what was your journey going from, uh, from singing early music you know, with no vibrato at all to becoming an opera singer? And you mentioned your true voice there. How did you find your true voice? I had singing lessons and... I had singing lessons at Birmingham, um, but it wasn't until I went to a teacher called Helga Mott, who taught quite a lot of um, male singers, uh, good, really good male singers. And she said, darling, I think you're a dramatic soprano. Um, and I laughed loudly. Uh, and I can indeed still remember the time when I sang a top G in her front room uh, and thought, what's that noise that just came out of my throat um and at roughly the same time I auditioned and this is not really very long uh after I'd been singing in Clark's in fact I think I still was singing in Clark's um she then arranged that I I went I went to the Guildhall for an audition uh, very late and I got in and I started on the opera course um in 1976 so that's you know it's all around the same time um and indeed, they made me a dramatic soprano. I did Swore Angelica as my first role in the opera department. Uh, Puccini, as you will know, um, with topsies. Um, luckily, I was wearing a wimple. The wimple hid a lot. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I did that for two, two terms. I was now with uh, Noel Barker, fantastic teacher. And actually... In the end, I settled down as a mezzo, but I think that was it. It was a liberating thing to come to singing a completely different sort of repertoire. Um, and I, I, I think I did suppress something uh, in order to sing in that straight-toned way. You mentioned two of your teachers there, Helga Mott and, and Noel Barker. How fundamental were they uh, in, in helping you sort of turn the corner and, and launching you on your path? Oh, crucial, both. And also Paul Hamburger, um, who was a coach. Um, I think now people don't always give credit to musical coaches for, for the incredible importance they, they have in developing a singer's um, world. Um, and just that creative, creative, imaginative, um, brilliant musicianship, I found it amazingly liberating. I, I can't overstate the importance. I I experienced of, of finding a, a great teacher when I went to the Guildhall, having had some fairly indifferent singing teaching before, and meeting Susan McCulloch, uh, and then subsequently learning with Robert Dean, who just were transformational for me. And everything that I do now in my singing has been informed by by what I've learned from them. 
Harry and Robert, you both studied singing, you know, to, to different levels. Experiences, good, bad? Well, interesting. I mean, I, I just wish I had the teachers you've mentioned. Um, uh, I got very sort of, I was in English Music Theatre Company and uh, the sort of guru there was a, was a guy who taught Hustler and uh, and and Alexander Technique and, and actually not much singing. And But we all, you know, we all went to him and... and uh, I wasted so much money, I think. And uh, I've learned more about singing from you, Eamon, and Mary on our Genesis 16 courses than I ever learned way back then. So I think, you know, I think a lot of luck has to, has comes into it, who you're learning with. And, you know, that I think is very important for young singers today to actually get the right teacher who is who is not sort of, you know, filling you with, you know, information that's not really necessary that's really giving you the basics of technique and and uh, and shoring up your voice in a really healthy way and i think what mary was saying about coaches i mean paul hamburg a, a legend and uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, not enough credit's given to the, the really good coaches of today yeah it's it's i mean here at york we have um we have three excellent singing teachers and what they understand is that they're not they're, they're trying to unlock a voice they're trying to keep the voice as mary says free it's not about trying to get someone to do particular things it depends entirely on who you're teaching i had some disappointing experiences fairly early on but i also had um well and i was quite sure i was a disappointment to them as well but i did go to david pollard towards the end of my time at the guildhall who was absolutely fantastic and made me realize you know what what I could have sounded like but then I had Matthew Brooke and Roger Williams in the group so I wasn't going to be singing baritone much. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting isn't it I mean I, I I did have lessons with Ian Partridge and I used to pester Ian for lessons and I remember Ian saying to me look Harry you need to go to somebody who's going to teach you about technique I will teach you about the style of music and you know how to sing hand on how to sing text but you know you need the basics from somebody else, and uh, sadly for me, I never got that. That's why, partly why I gave up really, and uh, and wanted to you know stand the other side and try and bring the best out of the the singers in front of me. It's such an important relationship that between uh, teacher and singer, uh, and I think with you know in terms of singing teachers and singing students, it can become particularly close. I'm always um, encouraging the young singers who I work with today to you know, to make sure that that relationship is is right for them um, and to make sure that it's someone that you can trust musically and personally. Uh, and if it's not right for you, because you're not always going to end up um, with someone that, you know, the dynamics might not, just might not work, then it's all right to change. Absolutely. I, I uh, And I think there are lots of things wrapped up in this, you know, personal connections, somebody you like, somebody you've been taught by since you were very, very young, a lot of people stay with somebody too long, I think, um, and it's because they're emotionally involved. I don't mean it in any improper way. I just mean that um, mm. they they are grateful and they there's a sort of quasi-parental relationship and they, they feel disloyal to move on or they've realised that their voice is not developing in the way that their particular teacher wants it to. It's a very, very complicated thing to be brave enough to to stay with somebody long enough to find out that they're doing you good, but not so long to find out that they're becoming ineffective. Well, here's a sign of a good teacher. When I I learnt with Susan McCulloch for for ten years from when I went to the Guildhall and then and then after, uh, and it was actually she who said to me um, at one point, she said, "I think it's time for you to go and learn with someone else." And I th I thought that was a sign of a, a great bit of teaching because she knew I'd started having some sessions with Robert Dean and it was a wonderful and I'd actually been thinking it myself but as you say I was 
um, I felt tremendously loyal to her because she'd done so much for me. Um, but I just, I remember thinking that that was an extremely generous act and, uh, and, and, and a sign of a great teacher who knew that she'd probably done what she, what she could do. And, and it was time for a change. I had the same experience with Noelle. She, she did the same thing. Um, but I, I'd also know teachers now who set uh, a time limit around their lessons. So they say, I will teach you for this number of months and then we will see how we go from there, which I think is also a good way. Going to Guildhall on the opera course, um, one might have expected a, a sort of conventional operatic career, but you had an encounter with a particular piece, Pierre Lunaire by Schoenberg. And that changed things for you. It did. I had um, I had done A level uh, music, and I had encountered uh, Pierre Lunaire, and in fact, I had run out of the room screaming. I thought that is the nastiest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> and I was very firmly in the Talis and Shepherd camp, and Schoenberg was absolutely not my thing. And I really did have a physical. Uh, reaction to it of loathing <laughs> at 17 or something um, but I was working with Buxton Orr who was running the new music ensemble at the Guildhall and he needed three people to do a one part each you know it's three three sets of seven songs um, and for some reason I got completely hooked and it was um, I ended up doing two thirds of it because somebody dropped out in panic um, and there was something about the, the freedom of interpretation that you had to work out how you were going to do it. Uh, no two people have recorded Pierre Lunaire in the same way. It always sounds different. Um, and there was something very liberating in that for me. I just thought I, it was, I was going through a, a period. I don't know, Harry, if you remember this period. I had a terrible period in Clark's when I was absolutely terrified absolutely terrified of singing you know and the bigger the occasion the more my nerves got to me um absolutely crippling you know crippling crippling um lack of control and somehow because the Schoenberg requires such resources of you know intellect I suppose um but also energy these fierce um you know wild vocalizations that's all I can say um that but with, but with the rigor of trying to sing these very difficult intervals and everything, um, I, I found it liberating, and and I remained, you know, I remained completely captivated by that piece. Interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I think very similar to me, I had a, um, I had terrible nerves as a singer, but contemporary music did something else for me and I think it's that concentration on the fact that it is incredibly hard and I had great times with Sing Circle and Greg Rose doing works by John D. Harrison, Cage, Berio and because you know they're so hard your vocal techniques you're called upon and and uh, it sort of takes you out of yourself you've got something else to concentrate on. Absolutely, absolutely. So Mary this was a gateway if you like um, and led to a, a kind of burgeoning interest in contemporary writing for the voice and and ended up with you working with with many living composers uh ollie nusson perhaps being at the forefront of that who you collaborated with quite a lot yeah i mean i think uh, singers often look up to who's doing great work you know who the great conductors are who they want to work with when actually your colleagues the people who are you know your same kind of age and in my early years i went to glyndebourne straight away after the guildhall pretty much after about a year um and uh I was in the chorus and I met Ollie at some point 
in the early 80s. Um, and in 1983, we did, uh, at Glanbourne, we did uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, and I carried on working with him. And it, there, was, there was about a 10, 12-year period when I seemed to be working with him or Simon Rattle, uh, which isn't a bad combination, I have to say. Um, and I, I did so much extraordinary music. I mean, standard stuff, you know, the Stravinsky's and Ravel's and all that, but also really, really unusual repertoire that I've never found for myself. Well, let's hear uh, something from Where the Wild Things Are by Oliver Nusson. We're going to hear a couple of excerpts. This is you starting off in the role of Mama, scolding Max, uh, and then we've got a little bit of the end of the coronation just before the rumpus. Two excerpts there from Where the Wild Things Are. Oliver Nusson conducting his own music with the London Sinfonietta, Mary King singing the role of Mama, and Rosemary Hardy as Max. That's incredible, that crystalline quality of Nusson's orchestration. So much going on, and yet you can hear absolutely everything. Wonderful music. All, all these influences of you know French and Russian and all the rest of it, it's absolutely, it's, it, it was a joyous time, all those performances. I did hundreds of them all over the world. Now, we, we hear you towards the end of that uh, except that we just heard sitting on a on an F sharp and having to sing some very fast tricky rhythm I mean that sounded challenging but when you know when compared with some of the other works you've performed uh, with a you know a huge variety of composers Henza Berio Burt Whistle Michael Finnessy and George Crumb uh, you know that's only naming a few these are composers who write exceptionally difficult works as, as we've touched on and the technical challenges are immense. Um, it's extended vocal technique, if you like, and they sound tremendously difficult. It's technically challenging, and to the untrained ear, they sound like they could be potentially ruinous on your voice. Uh, yes, although I think that more people ruin their voices trying to sing Verdi at 22 than they do singing contemporary music, I have to say. Um, I, think, I think it's all about freedom and experiment. I, I'm, I sort of... I have a great deal of sympathy for, for the great improvisers, you know, which mostly are not in our culture, um, mm -hmm. except, except in early music, I suppose you could say, um, because there's a freedom. 
I think we've lost that freedom in a lot of classical music. Um, uh, and and sing, young singers are often trying to get, as it were, the right answer. Um, and so they try to sing beyond their technical or vocal means. You know, they try to get ahead of themselves a little bit. And the thing about contemporary music, especially, well, obviously composers can, if they're writing for you, they can rewrite things, although that didn't happen to me very often. Um, uh, but I think I think it's a it's a... It's a different principle. It's a curiosity. I think most singers should stay curious um, and stay open. I had a I had a basic principle, which was if you couldn't think of a reason not to do something, if somebody asked you to do it, you should do it. Um, and I think that's that openness is important. And I think it's very much part of the whole contemporary music scene. Can you can you tell us what you think? I mean, what some of the challenges are of of singing you know, these, these extended vocal techniques. You know, if you're doing, if you're singing some of these in a program where it's sitting alongside more conventional repertoire, yeah. you know, that then you know that can present present difficulties. Robert, for example, I've been in Fagiolini concerts with you where you've performed Stripsody by Kathy Barbarian, or Nelly Was a Lady by by Bill Brooks, where we've got extended techniques in those, and then you've got to sing you know a piece of Tompkins after that. Yeah, that's probably bad programming. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I'm much of a, uh, you know, listening to what Mary was doing, I don't think I'm much of a sort of role model, really. I, I would put these extraordinary things together and, and love it and, and get by on the adrenaline. But uh, as some of the Fagellini things used to say to me, you couldn't do this night after night. And what Mary and others are doing, and we, we could talk about MT, you're doing, well, she was talking about Maureen Lipman, you're doing eight, eight programs a week yeah. so um, I don't think I've got the answer to that one. Mary whenever I've worked with you I'm always struck by how quickly you get to the the heart of a piece and about what it's trying to say I think this probably comes in no small part from your experiences on stage and being something of a stage animal did you did you or do you think of yourself as as an actor who sings or a singer who acts or, or do you think those are uh, unnecessary um denominations? I think that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, first of all, in musical theatre, we use that terminology all the time. You know, how would you relate, relate your three skills in musical theatre? You know, are you a dancer who also sings and acts? Are you an actor who sings and dances if pressed? Or, or how, do, how do those skills set? I think I'm definitely a theatrical animal. I absolutely think that the combination of drama and music um, in particular, um, is is what you know gets my juices going, and I think I've I've never been able to separate the importance of the word. I've never understood the singers who I I know many of, and I, I'm sure you all do too, who don't understand the words they're singing. I just don't get it. I don't get why it wouldn't be helpful. Um, and I meet a lot of young singers now. Obviously, when languages are poor in schools, often poorly taught, um, they're not they're not word curious. Um, but yes, I think I'm absolutely a, a theatre animal with all my soul from, from top to toe. Good. Well, we're going to hear you now in a, in a slightly different guise as uh, the narrator in Goblin Market by Erin J. Kernis. This is a setting of Christina Rossetti's extraordinary poem. It's a story of two sisters and their encounters with the sinister goblin men and their forbidden fruit. Mary, the luscious language in this must have been a gift to any performer, but let's hear a little bit of it first.
among the brookside rushes. Laura bowed her head to hear. Lizzie veiled her blushes. Crouching close together in the cooling weather, with clasping arms and cautioning lips, with tingling cheeks and fingertips. Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men. We must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? Come by, call the goblins, hobbling down the glen. Oh, cried Lizzie, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close lest they should look. Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook. One bears a plate, one lugs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow, whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must flow through those fruit bushes. No, said Lizzie, no, no, no. Their offer should not charm us. Their evil gifts would harm us. She thrust a dimpled finger in each ear, shut eyes and ran. An excerpt there from Goblin Market, a setting of Christina Rossetti's poem, music by Erin J. Kernis, The New Professionals, conducted by Rebecca Miller. I chose that excerpt partly because it has the fabulous line, you should not peep at goblin men, which somehow makes me think of you, Robert. <laughs> Okay, well, you need to see someone about that, all right? <laughs> I must say, that is absolutely fabulous. That was, Mary, that was just gorgeous. Do you oh. know, Goblin Market, I was given my aunt, Auntie Mary, when I was 13, she gave me a small leather-bound copy of Goblin Market, and it's I've, I've, not, I've not opened it since, probably, and I've certainly not heard it, but that was just fantastic. Oh, gosh. It's the same wow. collection of Rossetti poems that Vaughan Williams' Rest comes from. Extraordinary collection, yeah. I like you can hear how much you relish and, and almost taste the language, which of course, I mean, it's very onomatopoeic as well. But uh, there's a it's like an object lesson in in how to enunciate there. All of your voiced consonants, wonderfully long and languid. It's it's great work, Mary. Oh, one I hadn't you. come across before. Yeah, and and actually, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in theory, you could ask an actor to to do this piece. Um, uh, and in, and I'm sure in many cases it would be it would you know be better, but um, it's all nota it's rhythmically notated, and you can hear the orchestration is really beautifully precise to the to the words. So actually, you, it's all notated absolutely within an inch of its life, you know. So that there's no way, it, unless an actor is a, a, a confident reader, they would take far too long to learn the rhythm of it. Harry, we're very fortunate. We get to see Mary each year when we're invited to come and work with Genesis 16. And the singers are always 
blown away by what they learn about themselves in those sessions, ne- never mind what they learn about the singing. Yeah, I mean, we've, Mary, you've been on every single course, I think, since, since the inception of, uh, of yeah. Genesis. And it's been fantastic. The way you, where you take these singers, I mean, you've got 22 very different people. You've never met them before. But within five minutes, you've, you've actually almost worked out the character of each particular one. You've realised who's the one who's terribly self-conscious, who's the one who's over flamboyant, uh, etc. But And then within 10 minutes of that rehearsal, you have quiet you know because you've been playing theater games with them you know um uh, peter brook type uh, ones mm. and and the, the immense concentration you get but also with great hilarity behind it you know all is just amazing and you I, again i i learned so much i love i mean i i what i love about people having said that i prefer dogs um <laughs> actually it's not really true uh what i love about choirs and what i think both of you, all three of you, do in your in your choirs, is they are a collection of individuals, and of course you've got to have um, unification. Of course you have, but it's not never bland. Um, and I I really believe you have to you get the the greatest strength from the group if you can empower each individual within that group. And now this is where we're getting interesting, isn't it? Because, well, we've, been, we've just done a couple of episodes, Mary, on, on choral technique um, and without replaying the whole vibrato issue, that, that the conductors do seem quite often to start with this idea of an almost instrumental timbre that they want. And uh, actually allowing people's character to come through seems to be suppressed more than it's encouraged. In a certain type of choir, in community choirs, it is absolutely quite the opposite. But I'm wondering, you know, it would be great to be looking for the best of both worlds. I think there's a... Um, I'm, I'm observing um, a, a problem with, with some singers who come out of doing a lot of choral singing uh, and want to move into solo singing and indeed have the voices for it but they have become quite passive on the whole issue of breathing because they've taken their instructions for breathing from when the conductor gives them the upbeat to to breathe together Um, and I'm noticing that a lot of singers are not able to vary their breath patterning um, so they don't uh, they, they breathe very late and therefore very shallow. Um, so as they're moving into solo careers, that's a big problem. They have to get something into their bodies to find out what their the time their body needs to breathe in. And the breathing in is part of the musical phrase, which, of course, in the best choirs it is. But you can't do that for 40 people if you've got complicated polyphony, can you? So um, I do think that's an issue. It's part of about trying to take responsibility for your own breath. Um, I think is very important. I'm loving this. I'm going to make sure that I get as many people to listen to this as possible and say, "Look, I told you so. I told you so." <laughs> I know. Actually, one interesting thing: we'll go way back to the beginning of our talk when we were when Eamon asked you, Mary, about where did you discover your true voice? You know, singing in the Clarks with that straight sound, and that fact that what we want and i think um you know both we all feel the same that we want to find the true voice in young singers and actually allow them always to express themselves and as soon as we dampen that then we're constricting them and uh 
I, I think for young singers, it's just so, so important that they do find their true voice. And I, I think it's, it all, you know, dare I say, I think it's pretty irresponsible of, of a lot of sort of choir directors who try and sort of pigeon them, pigeonhole them into a sound, um, uh, you know, a straight sound, a particular sound that they want for, for things. And uh, I don't, I mean, would you, I mean, I'm sure you agree, Mary. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think there's a, that this this is a very big big question, you know, across across the board, especially working with young singers. I'm working with quite a lot of young singers at, at Glyndebourne now, and when I say young singers, I mean you know sometimes ten, uh, and we've done projects um, on Janacek, for example, and little projects where I've I've got them all singing in Czech, um, because I really do think you've got to introduce those skills early and see them not as an ordeal, but as fun. You know, that it's fantastic fun to make sounds that are not in your own native language. Um, but when I tell people that they, I've been working with 10-year-olds on Janacek, they, they get so shocked. Um, I think it all, it all all depends on how you're introducing different skills. And if you can possibly keep your repertoire varied, if you keep your repertoire varied, then you will keep vocal qualities varied. I mean, that's a bit simplistic because I think it's such a huge topic. What I worry about with with constriction is that you then don't have the freedom. You don't know what to have an unconstricted sound is. For myself, I know I suppressed vibrato by flattening the back of my tongue. Um, and that did two things. You know, it made a horrible hooty noise for a start, um, uh, which was on the flat side. Um, but it also just stopped me being able to access the upper parts of my register because I would I was pressing the larynx down with the root of the tongue. So I think that there's, you know, you've just got to be, um, you've just got to make sure that every young person knows what free, freedom of the sound is first. Mary, one other thing I'd just like to ask you about is your work in musical theatre. You mentioned that you were coaching Maureen Lipman, and I know that you work with uh, numerous singers working in, in various West End musicals, and you teach on the musical theatre course at the Royal Academy of Music. How do you manage to traverse so many different musical and vocal styles? I'm not really sure what the answer to that is, because sometimes I think when we're talking about you know vocal qualities, um, and obviously there are things in in musical theatre that are very, very different from mus from uh, classical singing. Um, but sometimes I think it's about susceptibility, uh, sensitivity to style. And I think I always did love many musics, uh, believing that there's good music and bad music and it's got nothing to do with whether it's jazz or folk or... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I draw the line at heavy metal, but that's my only drawing of the line. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, I... I I got into musical theatre sort of by random random connection. Um, somebody wanted some coaching. They'd been a dancer and they wanted to work on, they were doing a big role in a West End show. And I had to learn how to belt. It's simple as that. But when I when I got involved with, um, you know, teaching myself and I did some courses and worked with a few people um, myself, I realised that it wasn't so very different from Pierre Lunaire. Um, which was sort of bringing me around full circle. I thought, oh, I've done this kind of thing before. Oh, I get it. Talking about coming full circle, we're approaching the end of this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word and tell your friends that they can find the series on their usual podcast providers. You can also sponsor an episode and get in touch with us if you would like to. Mary, it's been wonderful talking with you, um, as I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Uh, so we'll have to get you back another time. But to bring us full circle, we're going to finish where we began. 
um, some early music uh, and a piece which I brought with me the first time I met you when I was coaching uh, Voice Lab which was uh, one of the many projects that you ran at the South Bank Centre, uh, not knowing that this was one of your absolute favourites. So in the manner of Desert Island Discs, Mary, will you introduce our final track? Well, this is Our Robin by William Cornish. Um, I first heard this when I must have been about 16, when I was actually madly infatuated by a pers- with a person called Robin. So that's where it came from. And I just thought it was the most ravishing thing I'd ever heard. And I haven't changed my mind. Coral Chihuahua is brought to you by Aoife Gelini and The Sixteen, and produced by Perseus, The Sixteen, Aoife Gelini and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using funding from the National Lottery, made available through Arts Council England, and this episode was further sponsored by Kieran Cooper. Praise be his name forever. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, we'd very much like to hear from you. Please get in contact with either ensemble. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.